You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month, we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Today, our guest is Ms. Melissa Maley. Melissa Maley is a 14-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency, all that time spent in what is called the clandestine service, and most of that time, interestingly enough, overseas. Uh, she became a senior operations officer in CIA uh, with a specialty in the Middle East. She is an Arabist, an Arab speaker, and has majored in that area and continues after leaving the agency to consult in it. Uh, also today with us is uh, Dr. Thomas Bogart. He is the museum historian. He's been at the museum some three years now and has begun publishing. You can see his byline occasionally in intelligence journals and uh, a book he did uh, when he came here called The Kaiser's Spies. You can look for that. And uh, Thomas, let me just ask you before uh, we start uh, the interview with, uh, with Melissa, uh, I know one of the things you've been doing is coordinating the SpyCast and looking at the feedback from, from our listeners. Is there anything you'd like to highlight th- at this time? Uh, yeah, thanks, Peter. No, we've gotten some uh, um, some some pretty amazing feedback. Um, one issue that um, popped up um, again and again related to our last um, two spy casts on uh, uh, the movie Breach and the Robert Hansen spy um, case. Uh, we'd had David Major and Eric O'Neill, um, both formerly with the FBI, comment on Hansen, and people observed that these two men had very different perceptions of Hansen. And, uh, uh, you know, some listeners felt they were actually contradicting perceptions. Now, the question that I get, that we get, is, uh, you know, which is the true version? Who is who's the true Hansen? Uh, so if you could comment on that, I think uh, people would really appreciate it. Sure. No, I'd be delighted to. I think uh, you, you're, that's a very astute observation uh, by the listeners. And one of the things I think that uh, reminds us all of who've been in operations is that's right. You do get different perceptions. You get different perceptions of events, and you get different perceptions of people. Uh, keep in mind that David Major uh, was a career uh, special agent in the FBI and knew Hansen for some, I think, over 20 years and was, in fact, his supervisor for uh, uh, quite a bit of that time, was intimately familiar with, with his work. Uh, Eric O'Neill, uh, the FBI uh, uh, employee who 
was assigned for a period of time to Hansen's office, saw him from a very different perspective. That is, he was in the office for, as I recall, it was, it was a month or, or slightly over, and had a perception of Hansen that was very much at variance with David's. Uh, and the other thing I think we shouldn't discount is the Hollywood factor. That is, you also have people making a movie, and they're going to, to bring their own creativity to the role. Uh, no, uh, David Major felt that uh, the, the, the scripted Hanson, if you will, was very much at variance with uh, the Hanson as depicted by Chris Cooper. I think Chris Cooper was very ably following his script. It was a fascinating uh, depiction of Hanson, but from everything I've heard, that was not the real Hanson. The real Hanson was rather a, uh, a soft-spoken, rather self-effacing, uh, civil individual and not the somewhat rude and overbearing fellow depicted by uh, in the movie. But, but then again, I think we have to grant Eric his perception of Hanson, having served a month, and how he was treated by Hanson. So I think it's, it's not a question of making these two points of view agree. I think it's just a question of realizing those are different perceptions. Uh, the result, of course, was neither David's nor Eric's, but what, uh, what Billy Ray, the director, and the scriptwriter finally came out with. Okay, but thank you very much for the questions. That's, uh, we're delighted to hear you're listening out there, and we will uh, try and address these things as they come up. Melissa, let me turn to you. And I think folks would be very interested in hearing from you on several levels. Uh, one is that you were a very accomplished case officer or operations officer in the clandestine service. Um, there are very few people that achieve that, let alone women. And I think your perceptions on your career, what you might say to another woman, let's say considering a career in CIA, that is to anyone considering it, but particularly another woman. And I think uh, the other thing that would, I think, greatly fascinate people uh, is the fact that you were so deeply involved in operations in the Middle East and dealing with uh, factors that today are so front page and so much on our minds. Well, first of all, Peter, let me thank you uh, for inviting me to uh, participate in this, uh, in this cast and also to say uh, my great appreciation for the International Spy Museum. I'm a frequent visitor here, and I think it does a real service to uh, the world of espionage to show how, uh, show how we, the real spies, do our trade. Uh, yeah, I have to say on my career, people ask me quite frequently, you know, how was it inside the CIA? What was it like as a woman? I mean, how did you, how were you treated and how were you able to do your job, especially in the Middle East? And when I look back, one of the things that I realize now, and I did not realize it at the time, was I came into the CIA at a moment of opportunity. It was just before uh, the end of the Cold War. And when I went through training, it was very much through the Cold War mentality. That was still, you know, the communism is the big threat. This is how we have to defeat the main enemy. These are all our tools and our toolkit, and this is what we're supposed to do. However, by the time I got through training and deployed out to the field, the Soviet Union was collapsing. The Berlin Wall had fallen. All of a sudden, it was a brand new world, and we didn't know what it was. And within that context, everybody within the organization was, you know, frailing around pretty much trying to figure out who we are, what is our mission, and how can we contribute to national security threat, uh, you know, contribute to our national security protection today and in the future. So 
uh, when I was overseas, people were looking for some bright ideas of what we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to be doing it. And I think due to that, being a woman, I was on not on unequal footing. They were looking for ideas, and they were looking for good operations within the disarray of, of this new post-Cold War world. So I felt that I was able to stand up and say, you know, give me a shot at this. I have some good ideas. And uh, so I went out. I worked the streets, and I was able to, uh, much to the surprise, I think, of many of my supervisors, to be very effective in the Middle East as a female. There were very few female officers that served as case officers to begin with uh, at the CIA at the time. There had been some um, before I came. Uh, most had not done particularly well and had not stayed very long. Uh, those that did succeed did so un- really uh, overcoming great obstacles, uh, And but they succeeded in places like uh, the Soviet Union or in uh, Europe. And there was this idea that, gee, you know, women just couldn't work in the Middle East. Uh, the Arab male would never respect or agree to take uh, instructions from uh, a female in the Middle East, uh, you know, Western female. So I found that to be completely untrue. And I think maybe it's because I was one of the, the earliest women to be able to do that. And I spoke Arabic before I joined the agency. I spoke uh, Arabic uh, I should say, as I worked in the Middle East, my Arabic got increasingly better. But more importantly, I understood about the culture of, of the land, the, uh, the people, the history, the texture, the, the cuisine. I really immersed myself in, in the areas of the Middle East where I served. So I was uh, having a lot of fun. I was enjoying the environment in which I worked. Uh, there were some very interesting things going on, uh, particularly in the 1990s uh, in the Middle East, not just politically transition issues, uh, but also really the emergence of terrorism in a new form. Uh, and I was honored enough to be able to work, uh, do uh, early work against al-Qaeda. Uh, so I think that um, the, the assumption that, and then and today also, that, gee, it's very difficult for a woman uh, to work in the Middle East is wrong. If you have the uh, desires and the background knowledge and, and, and the skill level, you can succeed in that. And I was given that opportunity to succeed, and boy, did I have a good time doing it. Let me, let me uh, you, you're, uh, that's absolutely fascinating, that putting us into the context of when you went into, into the agency and the work that confronted you. Two questions. One, as you did your work as an intelligence officer, Did you have a sense of contribution? Did you feel that what you were doing, you and your colleagues, other, and I'll say station officers or CIA officers, uh, did you feel that the work had value to the U.S. government, had value to the decision-making in the national security arena? Peter, that's an excellent question. I think the answer is sometimes yes and sometimes no. When you're in a period of great turmoil and transition and you don't know what the threats are, it's very hard to know what you're collecting is the right stuff and whether it's going to have the impact on policy making and national security decisions. And so there were times that you would be out there really, you know, working the streets hard, trying to get intelligence, to, and then only finding out later that, you know, that's just not what the policymaker wanted. Uh, it didn't add to their knowledge base to make those hard decisions. Then there'd be other times you'd be working on something that seems so trivial, or maybe not trivial, um, but 
important in its context, but you don't see the larger implications. And in particular, uh, I worked a lot of terrorism cases, and um, sometimes you still a secret that you don't know it at the time that's going to be very important. But it, it ends up on the president's desk, and I've had that opportunity, I had that honor uh, for that to happen. And, and you can actually see a change in policy as a result of, of you know, intelligence that you had collected, that you tasked your agents in, in very you know risky situations to go out and collect, and they bring back the good stuff, and it makes an impact. And you can see that in, in my particular case, uh, intelligence that not only changed policy, but saved American lives. We'll be right back after this. Let me try and take you back just a little bit in time. What was the effect of 9-11 on what you were doing? 9-11 had such a tremendous impact on the intelligence community across the, uh, the, the broadest scope of it. And when you look at the microcosm of the CIA, when 9-11 happened, it was, we were very much in that moment, just before 9-11, of, being, of knowing that there was a, uh, an emerging threat. Uh, not even just emerging, that there was a threat that was just over the horizon and that was going to hit us in the head. But we didn't know exactly the wins and the wares and the really important information for tactical intelligence. And so you, in this environment, um, we were nervous, we were concerned. I was working at that particular moment in time in recruiting new employees for the CIA, staff officers, not agents. And... Um, and I was trying to find uh, young Americans who spoke Arabic well or other, you know, difficult languages. And um, it was tough. It was really tough because uh, at that time, you know, smart young youngsters, new graduates out of college, they had a lot of opportunities to go work uh, in corporate America overseas, especially if they had good uh, linguistic skills. And it was very tough to compete with the salary bases that the big corporate America, uh, big corporate America was offering. And so you ended up losing out to these uh, youngsters or to these corporate America. The youngsters would go elsewhere, not only in salaries, but it took so long to, to join. Actually, the, the process of joining the CIA is, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. You have to go through this very long and elaborate uh, interviewing process and security uh, checks and all of that. So, you know, you would start with somebody, you'd lose them. Uh, to somebody else. It was very frustrating. Uh, and um, But when 9-11 happened, uh, it was like the very next day I started getting these phone calls. It was amazing. You get from, from Americans all over saying, you know, corporate Americans opening up their Rolodexes to the CIA and say, you know, I worked in this area, business trips. I know all these people. I would be happy to broker introductions. You'd have 50-year-old, uh, you know, Americans that had never ventured inside the U.S. government that all of a sudden wanted to contribute time to, to national security and what could they do for the CIA. You had university students lining up for the opportunity to serve their nation. So it was, it was really, it was a night and day moment uh, in in terms of recruiting, but also in terms of intelligence, all of a sudden it was no longer an emerging threat. It was a threat that was on your doorstep. It was there. You didn't know where you were going to be hit next. And there was this sense that the next hit was going to come uh, tomorrow. 
and it was going to be worse than 9-11, and, uh, and that we really needed to batten down the hatches uh, and in one way and in the other way to really go offensive. And I think that's what you saw out of the CIA in particular right after 9-11. You know, I think I, I shared some of that. That's a very moving experience to deal with Americans who want to volunteer to help their government or provide information. And there's no money. These are people who are doing this out of patriotic motives. And they seek you out, and what they have may not be of all that great value, but you, you, you so respect their motive and what has brought them in. And, of course, the phenomenon of people knocking at our gates at CIA, uh, very much the sort of Pearl Harbor phenomenon of, our country's, our country's at war, our country's threatened, what can I do? Um, do you think that that feeling is still pervasive in the country? Uh, and I ask you that, uh, I realize you're not in the agency now, but you are an analyst, you do follow events, you're very well wired in with what's going on in this town. Uh, do you sense that that mood still prevails or do you think it's changed? I think that if you're talking about university graduates and their interest in serving in uh, in some in, in some capacity in the U.S. government, in a national security capacity in particular, I think that feeling is still there. I talk uh, at universities frequently uh, before young uh, young students that are getting ready to graduate in the next year or two that are looking forward to what kind of career do they want to have, and they're very interested in the CIA. Uh, and the kinds of questions that they ask tell me that patriotism is still alive and well, but even beyond patriotism, one of the things that I think that is motivating uh, American youth is they see that uh, the work that the CIA does, uh, the intelligence work, is a critical component of our nation's well-being, and they want to be a part of that action. And so you see them saying, you know, it's not that I just want a good job, it's I want a job that's going to do something that's really interesting and make an impact. You know, I know uh, not long after you got out of the agency, you published a book, Denial and Deception, uh, which, as I recall, was quite well-reviewed and I, I think sold well. I know we carry it here at the museum. And I, my understanding is you're working on a second one. Is that right? Well, I am slowly and surely. You don't have to answer that. <laughs> I am working on um, on a book about women in intelligence, specifically women in the CIA, because I think this is one of the stories that's not told. Uh, if you read a, a, a historical book or a history book, I should say, on the CIA, normally it's written um, by men about men. Uh, so somehow our um, our image of the CIA tends to be predominantly male. And my question is, Yes, the CIA was a, a predominantly male organization for many, many, many years, but that doesn't mean that there weren't women that were there that didn't, that didn't contribute. And what I found to be most interesting in the research that I have done is that there are wonderful stories about uh, what women were doing during the Vietnam era in particular, uh, and um, even, you know, post-Vietnam, uh, post that working very much out of the limelight even within the CIA, out of the limelight, doing the nuts and bolts kind of work, but uh, but really contributing. And before, I mean, if you look, I think one of my favorite stories is when we talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, I mean, and you think about it, you know, this is maybe ancient history, but you think about all the players in it, and you they're all male. And you would think that only in the intelligence establishment 
that there were only men working on the Cuban Missile Crisis. But it's not true. There's some women that had very important roles that, you know, I think it deserves to be told. And so I'm trying to interview women uh, who've worked, um, who worked at the CIA since it was established to begin to weave together these tales so you, you can see their greater contribution. I'm, uh, you know, I think I was very fascinated uh, at hearing when you came into the agency and why timing played such a critical role in your being given so much leeway. They were looking for good ideas. You had good ideas just like everyone else, and they were welcomed. It's now 2007. Uh, we are where we are, which includes dealing with this very ambiguous war in Iraq. Uh, let me ask you a couple of questions just relating to our times. I'm a young person. I'm interested in going into intelligence, CIA, if you like, or the intelligence community. But I'd like to ask you that on two levels. One, I'm a young person. What would you say to me? Two, I'm a young woman. What would you say to me? One of the questions I hear an awful lot is, you know, we read all this stuff in the newspaper about the CIA and bad morale and doing things that are illegal or immoral or something. Can't can't tell me what it's really like, and is there a place for somebody like me in an organization like that? And I think this is actually the um, kind of question that needs to be asked. And, and I tell people that I think that the CIA, for all the difficulties that it has had uh, in the 1990s and into the 2000s, is on a, a much better trajectory now. They, there's a realization that the, the national security, the threat environment, let's say, is changing radically, and you have to change how we do our business, and you have to be very creative about it. And so they're looking to develop new toolkits and some bright ideas. So I would say to young people that are interested in national security and interested in intelligence, this is a very good time to come in if you think that you're going to have the crea creativity and the dedication to stick with the job because it's quite demanding. Uh, I don't think it's a rosy picture out there in terms of organizational development or uh, the international threat environment. I think if you join the CIA today, you should expect that you're going to have some difficulties internally as they figure out which direction and how they're going to do things, but also you're going to work 24 hours a day and seven days a week. And, and that's not so different than, I would say, you know, my time in the organization or your, or your time in the organization. We put in long hours, but particularly now, we're a nation at war against a global jihadi threat. And we're trying to figure out how to fight that war. Uh, and the old, a lot of the old ways of doing business just don't seem to be working. So I think it's an interesting time. If I was, uh, you know, 20 years old and looking at the CIA tonight, today, I would be intrigued and I would be interested. And even as a woman, I would say that because when I joined in in late 80s, there a woman had her place, and it wasn't really in the clandestine services. I and my other, uh, and my fellow female uh, case officers and, and others that have worked um, elsewhere in the CIA, they really broke through those hurdles and moved up into management. Uh, but I wouldn't say that what we talk about is the glass ceiling of moving into upper management. I wouldn't say that's an open opportunity or an equal opportunity for women. And that's a, that's a struggle that women need to get, carry on. And if you're good at what you do, and if you're dedicated and you really want to succeed, I think that this next generation of women are going to bust through that and shatter that, that glass ceiling. Well, that's, that's an incredibly optimistic note, and I, I, I hope you're right. Um, 
I'm going to date the SpyCast now by asking you a couple of questions that are going to uh, clearly put us uh, where we are, which is in uh, April of 2007. Uh, you've referred through the discussion to the war that we are in. And I think it's, it's fair, I think, to ask you, uh, as a specialist, as a Middle Eastern specialist, uh, what comment might you make in April of 2007 uh, about the war, about where we are, uh, your thoughts about the future? I think when the United States went into this war, it was um, with eyes that were very much uh, covered with idealism. And uh, one of the things that has happened over these past years has been a realization that we can't make the war the kind of war we want to have, and we cannot dream the scape. Uh, we're now dealing with a very difficult situation in Iraq, and I think that we have um, in our in the Bush administration there has been a transition to be much more frank about how difficult it is and let the generals have more say in how they're running the war. When you look to the future, the near future, and you say, how is this going to play out uh, in terms specifically of will the United States be able to exit Iraq in a way that will um, have made the venture worthwhile by making America and the West more safe? You know, that's a really tough situation. American people want out of Iraq. I think that the Americans Americans have really spoken on this, that they're tired of the war. They don't see the benefit of uh, the investment of Treasury and, and, and our, our, our young Americans, our soldiers, and they want out. And I have always been very reluctant about this war because as an expert on the Middle East, I could see the problems going into Iraq quite clearly. And I didn't see that we really had a plan for dealing with those kinds of problems. Now, looking at the exit, what I have to say is we need to exit responsibly. And I'm not saying I'm against a deadline for an, an exit strategy. or That's not the point. What I'm saying is that we need to leave in place mechanisms and so that the Iraqis have some tool to handle their internal dissent, which is a civil war, and so that the neighbors have a way to contain the violence. Because one of the last things that we want to see is for the Iraq war to escalate uh, in, into a regional war in which we see uh, Sunni and Shia violence and uh, the whole region in flames. And I think that would just be terribly detrimental to U.S. interests and certainly to the interests of the region. Uh, thank you very much, Melissa. I think if you don't say another word, this will have been a fascinating interview. However, I'm going to ask you one more question, which you need not reply to at all, and that is any comment you would like to make on the Valerie Plame case. Valerie Plame, well, you know, what a terrible case, first of all. I, I think it's a real tragedy. And, and from multiple levels. First of all, you have an, an officer, a clandestine officer, serving in an area, a very, a, a very important area today, uh, counterproliferation, keeping the weapons of mass, destructions, uh, mass destruction out of the hands of people who uh, would threaten others with it. And um, it's tough work. I've, I did some uh, counterproliferation work. It's very difficult. Uh, but you have a real expert uh, in this area, uh, working, um, had worked a number of years, had formed contacts, had worked under different names. Um, all of a sudden, her, her true name, her true affiliation, and her picture is spread out all over the United States and the world through the mass media. 
that has a devastating impact, not only on Valerie herself, but also on organizational capabilities. All those operations in which she, that, all those operations that she ran previous to her exposure are now compromised. Her relationships are now compromised, and if somebody really wanted to, they can unravel just you know one th- piece of this, and it's like a rug being unraveled, and you can expose everything that she did potentially. So I think it's devastating on an organizational level of this type of exposure. And then you talk about the personal level. When you work and at the CIA, it's a secret organization. It becomes your life in a very large way, and you are very dedicated. You work long hours and you care about your cases. You care about your colleagues. You care about your results making an impact. And to have one day your career taken away from you, that's very hard. And then also to become a public persona when you're used to operating behind the veil. Uh, That's just very difficult. So I think, you know, when I would say to Americans that really we must take much more seriously uh, issues of national security. When we say something's a secret, and, and we have to be respectful of the secrecy laws. And if it's if the letter of the law doesn't cover it, then I'm ask. I would ask, why are you concerned with the letter of the law? Shouldn't you not be concerned with the intent of the law? Uh, and and should you not be concerned with advancing American capabilities, not degrading American capabilities? So I think it was an unfortunate event all around. It turned into a real political circus. Uh, Valerie's out of a job. CIA's out of a very competent officer working in a very important uh, area, counterproliferation. So everybody lost. Yeah. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today, for being gracious enough to make the time available. I think it's been an incredibly insightful interview. Uh, I think we'll get some feedback. I think people are going to be fascinated by your comments and uh, will most likely want to hear more. So we may try and invite, invite you back in again. Well, thank but you thank very thank much, But thank you Peter. so much for coming with us today. Thank you. Next month, I'll be addressing with my guests some of the questions that we have received from many of you concerning uh, joining intelligence community and careers in intelligence. So I would encourage uh, those of you who have questions uh, to forward them to us, and we will try and address your questions as well. You can send your questions to spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to answering your questions and to discussing careers in intelligence with you in our next broadcast.